We're in Titus chapter 2 this morning. We're in the book of Titus. So if you go, if you find 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, towards the back of the New Testament, Titus is right there between 2 Timothy and Hebrews. And uh, we are in a little three-week series. We started last week on this book, and so we are in week two this week, and we're going to cover verses 1 through 15 of chapter 2. We're calling this series Good Church, Good Life. And uh, the, the theme of good and goodness flows throughout the book of Titus. Uh, the word for good or goodness is used about ten times um, in that book. And, um, and, and really the, 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 main, the big idea being that God calls us as Christians to live a godly life, which means our, we believe rightly about God and behave according to that belief. We believe and behave rightly in accordance with who God is. And that's what a good life is. That's what it means to, to do good uh, in God's eyes. And, and a good church, as we talked about last week, is a church that, per, that pursues godliness and is, pursues being a godly church. So this week, it's going to get a little more personal for us as individuals. We're going to talk about uh, what does it look like to, to, have, to live a life of growth, spiritual growth, and godliness. And God has called every believer in the room this morning to that lifestyle of spiritual growth and pursuing godliness. So what does that look like for you and your stage in life even? As he's going to get the Apostle Paul as he can do. He's a little bolder than I am, a little more specific than I tend to be. He's pretty bold and specific in Titus chapter 2 of what the expectations are for each of us no matter where we're at in life. And today you're going to see... What the Christian life really should look like in the day-in, day-out, ebb and flow of life. Nothing fancy here, right? Following Christ is about all of life. Not just in the big mountaintop moments and not just in the valley moments when we cling to the Lord. But really even in the mundane, boring times of life. Just an ebb and flow in and out, 24-7. What does it look like? To live godly. Because at the end of the day, that's what most of life is, right? Most of life is not a mountaintop, and most of life is not a valley. Most of life is kind of in the middle. And so if we only, you know, worship on the mountaintop or pray and cling to the Lord in the valley, we kind of, we kind of miss something there in what is really the normalcy of life. What does God expect from us? And it's kind of just simply laid out for us in Titus chapter 2. So what does it look like to live a life of growth and godliness? So look with me at Titus 2 verses 1 through 15. We'll read all that together. I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. It is on the screen for you as well. Paul writes to Titus, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now remember, Titus was a teacher. He was a preacher. He was one of Paul's guys that he had sent out to, to do work. And he's in Crete. He's setting up and helping that church get established. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then here's what that looks like. Verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded. Dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a good model of good works. Be a model of good works, and then your teachings show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may, not, may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared 
bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So what's going on here? Well, Paul wants Titus here to teach them, he says, what accords with sound doctrine. We talked a little bit about that last week, this idea of, um, this idea of godliness has to do with, with what you believe and then how you behave. And so here he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That word accords means fitting. And so what kind of living is fitting with what you believe? And that's what he's kind of laying out here. If you believe rightly, here's how you are to live rightly. That, that, that's what godliness is all about. And he begins to lay it out as you see group by group, stressing particular things that may have been particular struggles that these particular age groups even had dealt with in Crete. Now, we struggle with a lot of the same stuff, no matter our age, right? And so someone can struggle with being sober-minded whether they're, whether they're 75 years old or whether they're 15 years old. That's not really the point. But in Crete, he's dealing with particular issues. But it does show us here that God has a word for all of us, that God has a place for all of us. And no matter what age or stage of life we're in, God addresses all of us in his word. And notice verses 1 through 10 are about what to do, how to live. Verses 11, 13 are about the why why we should pursue these lifestyles, why we should do these things. Paul is laying that out. Then verse 15 is him once again saying, hey, Titus, preach this, encourage this, rebuke them if you have to. Don't let them disregard you. Stand on the word of God. This is important. A lot is at stake here. Because remember, Crete was a a godless sort of place, a very immoral place that was just known for lying and immorality. I mean, I said last week, they were so known for lying in Crete that the, the name of the city was used in slang to refer to people who lie and refer to the act of lying. It was synonymous with lying. I mean, it was just a kind of a scandalous place. And so think of the types of places and cities that you might instinctively think culturally tend to um, have habits or lifestyles that we think are far from God. You know, we think sin city and things like that. We've got plenty of sin in our own city, not label other cities sin city. But that's kind of the point here. As he say, he say, man, Crete's not... Crete is not this place that was like, you know, Mayberry, uh, where everything seems to be going okay. It's a place of immorality, and this church is called called the same standard of godliness whether they live in Crete, okay, Sin City, or whether they lived in Mayberry. It didn't really matter. Uh, The standard is still the same as we pursue the Lord. And so you'll notice here he's laying out what a godly life looks like, why to pursue it, and how it's possible and it shows us that it's not just for super-Christians, right, as we might call them. If you've been saved 50 years or if you've been saved for five minutes, God desires for you and for me to pursue spiritual growth and to pursue godliness at every age and every stage of life. And God doesn't call us to do things that aren't possible with his help. Now, he will call us to do things that are impossible apart from his help. God will absolutely command you to do things that are a sin not to do that you can't do unless he helps you, right? Because a Christian life in and of itself is impossible apart from God's help. But in in his strength, we're to live this way. In in his strength, it's possible to live this way. Not perfectly, but as a pattern of life, it's possible to to flesh this out in our life. We have people in our congregation that live this way, all right? I've had people in my life that I've seen live this way. We can do this with God's help, with God's strength, according to the 
power that's at work within us through the Holy Spirit. So as we kind of step back to these 15 verses, two big things we need to know about pursuing growth and godliness in the Christian life, okay? Just two points this morning. Number one, no believer is exempt from the call to growth and godliness. And that is what the first 10 verses show us. No single believer is exempt from the call to spiritual growth and godliness. It does not matter where you're at in the Christian life, your age, your gender, your socioeconomic situation. Your Christian life is meant to be one of growth in Christ-likeness, pursuing godliness and living in a godly way. No one gets to, to phone it in spiritually. We don't get to retire spiritually. There's no excuses. God wants to continually work in our lives and through our lives until we're gone from this earth. And so let's just kind of break that down. First of all, no one gets to be exempt from this. That includes all ages and both genders. So we see that addressed here in a majority of the text. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women. We see that laid out. So let's just kind of go through what Paul talks about here. Older men. Now, first of all, men in general need to know that God has a higher expectation for you than our culture has for you. The culture continually tries to lower the bar, it seems like, for men. But God raises the bar when it comes to men. God created you to lead. God created you to conquer or to subdue the earth. And believer, he has saved you for mission and for purpose. So men are not supposed to be Homer Simpson, okay? If you've ever seen The Simpsons, right? And that's kind of the predominant cultural view of men. This lazy schlub that just kind of lays around and, and always tangling with his wife. And he's kind of the butt of all the jokes. And he's just, he's just the one everybody's just the punchline, right? Men are not called to be the punchline, right? Men are called to lead in their families and in the church and to be an example. And God has a, a huge purpose for men. And if it's men and women, he's told to go and subdue the earth. And so God has high expectations for us. And for old men, he calls them to be examples to the younger men. The younger men in the church need the older men to live in such a way that they can know what they're supposed to live like when they're 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years old. So let's think about that. Look at how he, he breaks it down just, man, very simply here. He says, first of all, he says older men are to be sober-minded. Now that can speak to literal soberness, right? As in like, don't get drunk. But it's here, and the Bible has plenty in there about that, but here it's probably mostly talking about in the figurative sense, right? And sober-minded in the figurative sense means clear thinking. You are to think clearly, not to have clouded thinking. You are to think clearly, wisely, and biblically about everything. And not to have other thoughts clouding that so that your counsel becomes unwise or unbiblical and unclear. So, besides alcohol... Here are some things that can cloud your thinking. We can be drunk on influence. Beware the temptation of power, right? The longer you're in the church, the longer you've been a Christian, and in particular if you've been at one church for a long time, you gain influence, and that's not a bad thing. But the craving of influence and power, leveraging it for ourselves and our agendas instead of Jesus, now that's a bad thing, and it can cloud our thinking. Drunk on self-pity. Things aren't going well in your life. If your life has not turned out as well as you hoped it would in some ways, your family or your career, you can get down on yourself and you can kind of check out spiritually, kind of check out of the church and kind of have a pity party and get a case of the poor me's, you might call it. But you have a role and God has a plan for you, so don't, be, don't let that cloud your thinking. Don't let your past cloud your thinking. Don't be drunk on influence or self-pity and don't be drunk on nostalgia. 
we have a tendency, the further we are removed from something, to think of it more and more fondly. We tend to remember the good and we tend to forget the pain. It's human nature. We remember our childhood Christmases, but we don't remember all the skinned up knees and the stitches usually as well. Nostalgia is a powerful drug, and the longer we live, the more we're tempted to live on the hit. I was born in 1980, so ages 0 through 9, almost 10, were lived in the 80s, and so I think extremely fondly of the 80s. Anything that's 80s themed that comes on, 80s music, that I love it all. And I get to think, why do I love the 80s so much? Man, the 80s were pretty awesome for me. First of all, I was blessed with a good childhood. Santa was still coming to my house in 1986, right? He was still bringing me stuff. It was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a good time. And I can think of, all, you know, all, all of my grandparents were still living and every aunt and uncle was still living. And, and, and man, it was just, it was a great time. So I think of the 80s, man, I mean, that was a, a fun decade. I think that was great. If everything was just a little bit more like the 80s and I have forgotten about all the stitches and all the bad music the 80s produced. <laughs> We tend to do that. I've forgotten the threat of Cold War hanging over the head until it ended. I've forgotten life without the remote control, you know? And then the corded remote control, which was weird. But as we age, we're all tended to look fondly back at other times in our lives. And the past is usually not as bad as we think or as good as we think or as our memories say. And we need to learn to cherish our memories, but we have to live in the present. So don't be drunk on your influence. Don't be drunk on self-pity. Don't be drunk on nostalgia. One will cause you to be over-engaged, right? One will cause you to disengage, and one will cause you to foolishly engage in the mission of the church. But also, he says, be dignified. Worthy of respect is what the word means. This isn't about how you dress or your style or a formal attitude in the way you talk. This is about being a man who people admire you for how you treat others, how you love the Lord, how you handle the word of God. Dignified, worthy of respect in the Christian sense and how you live your life. Self-controlled. If we are slaves to anger and lust and greed in the flesh, we cannot be godly. Lashing out at work, lashing out in the home, at neighbors or at the church is not godly and it is not manly. It is not any of those things. And you will see with all of these age groups and all the people he addresses, every single time he gets self-control, self-control, self-control. Because it is a fruit of the Spirit. And if self is in control, that means one thing. The Spirit is not. The Holy Spirit is not. We cannot be Spirit-filled and not have self-control. Not master our emotions or our, our lust. He says, be sound in faith and love and in steadfastness, right? So this is kind of a trio here, like, kind of like faith, hope, and love or something like that. So sound in faith, sound in what you believe and knowing what you believe and sound in love, being an example. Older men should be an example to younger men in the church and how to love your wife and how to love your kids and how to love your church and how to love the Lord. Example, sound in love, but also steadfast. That means endurance, right? How many times have we seen people get towards the end and hit midlife and beyond and to... To be honest, to drop the ball, right? To run out of bounds. Steadfast endurance. When you encounter marriage struggles, be steadfast. When your kids disappoint you as adults, and they probably will from time to time, be steadfast. When your health fails you, and all of ours will, be steadfast. When your career is over, and all of ours will be, be steadfast. When your energy level is lower, be steadfast. That's what he's encouraging. Be an example. Thankful for the godly examples of older men we have in our church. And God has a high calling and a usefulness that he has for the older men in every 
church. Notice the text does not define older men. And I won't either. <laughs> but as a general rule, it means your kids have left the nest, right? And you're hitting that, that stage of life where your kids are growing and they're gone. Older women, he says. Now, let's talk about women in general first. God has a unique role for women in the church and in, in, in the world at large. We don't need to let the world fool us into thinking the, that biblical womanhood is somehow oppressive. God's chosen chose to design humanity in a way that women bear children, okay? He could have designed it however he wanted to. He chose to do that. The Messiah was sent into the world through the womb of a young lady. And the world and the church need good, godly women and cannot thrive without them. Older women, in this sense, need to be examples to the younger. So how do they do that? He says, be reverent in behavior. The word reverent means, in the Greek, is two words combined. It's it's the word for lifestyle and the word for temple. So think of temple life, temple lifestyle. What's he talking about? He's saying it's a life fit for serving God. Live in such a way that you live like someone outwardly that's dedicated their life to serving the Lord. That's what it means to be reverent in behavior. He's not talking about your personality or your sense of style or how you dress. Reverence is not about our preconceived ideas about how church should work or worship. It's about living a life that pleases the Lord, fit for serving Him by His standards. He says, not slanderers. Now in Crete, there was likely a problem in this particular church there with some of the older women in the church using their words, their tongues to hurt and to wound others in the church. Slander, by definition, is malicious gossip. It is lies. It is false accusations. It is tearing others down with your words. And the Bible condemns all gossip, not just the malicious gossip. It condemns it all. Slander is just kind of a stronger one, right? than normal gossip. And just because something is true doesn't mean it's not slander or gossip. Sometimes we use that excuse. Well, it's true. Well, that doesn't make you wise for sharing it, right? And by the way, it's not... Slander and gossip is not a, a female sin. It, it, it is a, is a sin that both men and women contribute to heavily. And I don't think one, age, uh, one gender more than the other really. But in this particular church, he's addressing it with the women because there it was a problem with them. In some churches, it might be more of a problem with the men. But in either sense, what is slander? It's that malicious gossip. It's that, it's that false, false narratives and false accusations tearing people down. Many times when we gossip, it's introduced like this. I don't mean the gossip. But, right? Listen, when you put a preface on it, it's still gossip. When you give it a nice flowery introduction, it's still gossip. It don't matter what the cover of the book looks like. If on the inside it's gossip, it's gossip. And God's judging the inside of the book, not just how we flower it up on the outside when we introduce it to our neighbors talking about it. And you can always tell a gossip and you can always tell a slanderer because they tend to attract gossip and slander. They are the people usually that people just bring them stuff. They feed it to them. Why? Because they fed it to them before. <laughs> That's usually how it works. And I can't say it's a foolproof method, but in 38 years of living and several years of ministry, I can say that tends to be the habit. Mature believers, including mature godly women and mature men, need to be where gossip and slander in the church stop, not begin. It needs to be, there needs to be a wall. That, that is the place where if it comes to me, it ends there, right? You say, well, that can be awkward. And it should be for the person spreading the gossip and the slander. Shut it down. He says, don't be slaves to much wine. 
That's pretty obvious, right? Don't be a slave to a bottle. Be a faithful servant of Christ. Substance abuse will wreck your life and your witness. Don't self-medicate. Don't make excuses, right? Don't overdrink. Don't be an alcoholic. Don't be a drunk. All those, that's what he means. He says, be a, don't be a slave to much wine. If you, have, if you struggle with abusing substances, by all means, get help. Get help. Let us know. Let us help you get help. Over and over again, you'll see that because you can't be a slave to that and be a, a faithful slave of Christ and Spirit. But you can't be filled with that and, and, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says, they are to teach what is good and so train the young women. Older women have a responsibility to invest in the younger, to know the word and be able to speak it into a young mother's life or a young woman's life because you have a lot to offer. Not just in terms of life experience, but also just walking with Christ. Many of you for many years, and there are young women here in our congregation that would love your encouragement. They know they don't need your harsh criticism or judgmental glances, but they need, they need encouragement. They need people to invest in them, to love on them, motherly figures in their life, teaching them what is good and godly and biblical. Every church needs that. This can happen at lunch or coffee. Day to day, it doesn't have to be a Bible study. It can, it can happen through text messages and phone calls and passing in the hallway, just having a pattern of, of teaching and training and looking out and thinking of yourself as a trainer of the younger women, pointing them and encouraging them, being a mentor to them. And then he addresses the young women, he says, to love their husbands and their children. Now, in today's society... Our culture would have young women prioritize basically everything other than what, God, what Paul's going to lay out in Titus. And God has a huge plan for moms and for wives and for single women and, and for them to, to step into that is what he's calling them to here. And so, so when he says to love your husband and children, he highlights that because he wants them to know that that, that is the, the priority, right? He, he wants them to know, listen, love your, commit yourself to your family because wives and mothers are key to the family unit and to its functioning. It just, it's always been that way. You can go all the way back to the beginning. It's, it's always been that way. And Paul knew the high role of women and the critical role they play in the home. He knew the importance of a mother's love and how women play a critical role in the formation of their children's beliefs and practices. Wives are a huge encouragement to their husbands. A husband can live or die by the encouragement or the criticism of his wife. And Paul is saying a part of being a godly young woman is if you are married and have kids is to proactively commit yourself to the good of your family. And he goes on to say be self-controlled and to be pure. And these might even be going together and speaking in a, in a sense of marital faithfulness, right? But you see self-control there again. Purity. Working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husband. Now, some say this may, should be combined into uh, kind and working at home can be like, like one phrase, like a good worker at home. Right, rather than working at home and kind. Either way, the idea here is Paul is not limiting a woman's role here. That's not that's not his purpose. He is highlighting what is to be her primary calling as a wife and mother. He's not saying a, a, a woman can't work outside the home. He is saying that the primary call is to the family, and he wanted the young women to know it was important that they manage their home efficiently. Because when we all stand before the Lord. We're going to stand before the Lord. We're going to give an account for how we manage our families. And we'll, be, we'll give an account for being faithful employees and things like that. But he wants us to know God is putting a lot of emphasis, a lot of emphasis on how we manage our homes. 
how we love our spouses, how we raise our children. And nothing should distract from that primary care. And he says, because he don't want the word of God to be defiled. See, young women are living in such a way and how they love their families and how they show self-control that they do not give people a reason to revile God's word, to speak evil of God's word. Godliness is about pointing people to the word's power, not pe- making people question the word. Well, you say Christianity this, but I've seen this in her or him, you know? No, living in such a way that people can't use your lifestyle as an excuse to not be a believer. And then he addresses young men. And it looks at first like he just says, be self-controlled, right? I thought that was interesting. It's kind of like, oh, he addresses everybody, he gets to the young man, he's like, just control myself, you know? Um, Every age and gender needs self-control, but self-control shows that the Spirit is, is in control, as we mentioned earlier. It's a fruit of the Spirit. But young men in particular may be tempted to give in to their lesser desires of lust for power or sex or money or recognition, selfish desires, and pursue those things instead of pursuing the way of the Spirit. And he's calling them to be Spirit-filled, not self-filled, to be controlled by the Spirit, not by self and in verse 7, he says, when he says, show yourself to Titus, who was probably a young man by category, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. He's saying a model of good works for the young men. In particular, he wants to, he's saying these young men need a model, and they don't just need it from the older men. They also need it from other young men who will, who will be a model of good works. In other words, God expects young men to do good works too. They need examples of that, but they need to practice doing that, living in that way. Be an exam- I know, he says a good example to young men will have integrity and dignity and sound speech. Right? It'll be an example worth following, worth modeling your life after. Kind of like we talked about last week with the call to elders and pastors. Now, twice now we see Paul's concern that the message not be tainted by the messengers. Right? That opponent would be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. He's right back at it. He's very concerned about how we live that we not taint the message. That we not be distractions that we be distractionless so that people have to deal with the truth claims of the gospel and not use our lives as an excuse. That's what he wants. And our, how we live in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and in our homes really does matter in the day-to-day. It has real gospel implications as we live on mission in our culture. Now we, as we look at this, you see every, all these generations kind of called out Right? Address. And we are, at North Park, we're a multi-generational church. Apparently Crete was a multi-generational church. And if you're here and you feel like you don't have a place or a role, this text tells us that's not true. You aren't too young and you aren't too old to be used by God in some way. God has a plan for you and you don't get a pass from growth and godliness either. Or an excuse. Young or old or in between. And you notice, he, he never addresses, like, he doesn't say in the middle age. And I don't know why. He kind of keeps it in two broad categories. But he, he kind of forces us to pick which category we're in. But at the same time, it's the older and the younger, or people that think of themselves as older, and people that think of themselves as younger, that tend to be prone to the most excuses. It's the easiest for us to make excuses. Well, I'm just so busy. The younger, the younger tends to say this, I'm just so busy. I've just got so much going on. Or I'm just not ready for that. I don't think I'm mature enough. And it's easy to come up with those excuses. The older, I've served my time. I've did my part, right? You don't need me. I've heard that before. You don't, you don't need me. I've served my time. I've did my part. And it's human nature for us to make excuses, and Paul's wanting us to eliminate the excuses. What's the first thing Adam and Eve did when they sinned? When confronted by God, they made what? An excuse. 
Adam points the finger at Eve. Eve points the finger at the devil. Everybody's making excuses. And we've been making excuses ever since. And all of us are prone to do that if we're not careful. A multi-generational church cannot grow and flourish if its various ages don't model what we see in this text. Unhealthy things shrivel and die. They don't flourish. They don't grow. They don't mature. They don't bear fruit. They dry up. They go away. But we don't see a command in any of this for any age group or any people to defend their turf or to protect their territory or to act as a senator or a congressman for whatever their group is. What we see is a call for all of us to be examples and to encourage one another. That's what health looks like. But he goes beyond that. He, does, he goes beyond dealing with gender and age. He says every situation and circumstance. And what I mean, mean by that is when he, when, he, when he addresses bond servants in verse 9, and he says they're to be submissive to their masters and everything. Now, that's also translated in some translations slaves. That's probably the more accurate, to be honest. But slaves here are different than the ones in our nation's past. When we think slaves, we think, you know, 1842 in the United States of America and the Civil War and things like that. And it was a different type of slavery. It was not racially charged. The passages in, in this particular text, either way, is not really dealing with slavery, which we know is an evil thing. It's dealing with, so you happen to be a slave, here's how to live in that circumstance, right? Even though theirs was much different. You could generally, um, you, you could usually... Um, buy your way out of slavery. You usually were a slave because you were a captive of war, things of that nature. They had certain sets of rights and privileges and things of that nature. Not that it was a, a lifestyle that anybody would want, but Paul's point here is no matter what your lifestyle, no matter what your circumstance, no matter what situation you're in, there's a call for us to godliness. Now, there's an application here for our workplaces, right? That we need to work in a way as not to bring reproach on the gospel, not arguing with our bosses, seeking to please, but rather seeking to please them in the right way. Not stealing at work, but making the doctrine of God attractive and adorning it, as he says. Displaying the gospel's power in our lives through our integrity and our work ethic. But I believe a big application for us that we miss sometimes when we read these, we tend to go straight to employment, is the difficult circumstances of life. Because the bond servants are slaves mentioned here. We're the disadvantaged in society. And being a slave in any culture was never something that anybody's ever aspired to. And these people had lost freedoms, had lost their homes many times through war, financial tragedy, and Paul's showing no matter your circumstance or your situation or your status in the culture or the amount of money in your bank account, no matter if you're in a great position in life or one that no one would ever want to trade places with, God can use you. He has a purpose for you. And he expects you to walk. And to live in such a way in your circumstance that you adorn the gospel. Because people notice when the person that they would not trade places with for a million dollars lives differently than them, godlier than them, works harder than them, has more integrity than them. People notice that. Don't let your circumstances be an excuse for your sin. No matter what they may be. No believer we see here is exempt from the call to growth of godliness. Living the way it's laid out here requires continual growth spiritually. You can't coast spiritually and remain sober-minded and, and remain self-controlled and, and, and remain reverent in behavior. And you, you can't do it. You can't coast spiritually and, and, and do those things. We all leak, as they say, right? We, we, we just can't do it. We're prone to wonder. So we have to constantly be pursuing the things of the Lord and be in the Word and be a part of a local church and be trying to repenting of our sin and constantly be trying to grow spiritually, whether we're 8 or 85 Sin doesn't sleep. 
Your sin nature doesn't sleep. It doesn't rest. You have to kill it every single day and pursue Jesus. And don't get so lost in the detail of these categories that you miss the point that Paul's addressing all of us. And that the broad point is that no matter your age, stage, or situation, growth in godliness is the part of the recipe for God's purpose for your life. Now, the second big thing we've got to get a handle on if we're going to pursue a life of growth in godliness, we have to understand, number two, that the gospel makes growth in godliness possible. And only the gospel. Only the gospel. He tells us to do these things for a reason, right? He said, look, when you look down at verse 11, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, right? Because the grace of God has appeared. Live this way because of this. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The motive of our godliness, the fuel, the catalyst that makes it possible is the gospel. He says, do this for the grace of God has appeared. Referring to the birth of Jesus, his subsequent life, death, and resurrection. In his grace, God saves people, right? He's brought salvation to people. And that makes spiritual growth and godliness possible. And the fact we have been saved, that Jesus has come, and that Jesus will come again, should inspire us and motivate us in our Christian life. Notice he says, my favorite part of the passage that we are trained by God's grace. Did you catch that in verse, I think it's 11 or 12? He says, the grace of God is a beard training us to renounce ungodliness. The grace of God doesn't just save us. The grace of God trains us. We are trained by the gospel of grace. We are saved by grace and trained by grace. The word here is, for, is like a word for discipline. It's a process that is sometimes painful. But the same grace of God that rescues you from sin's penalty works in your heart to free you from its power, trains you so that you renounce ungodliness and worldly passion.